This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, looking this evening at verses 12 through 17, Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. Hear the word of God. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright For a single meal, you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, or he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that as we study your word together tonight, that you would uh, give us energy, attention, Uh, to focus on your word, to profit in our study together, and, Father, that you would help us to grow in grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The author of Hebrews has been encouraging his readers to hang in there, following Christ in some difficult times. He has uh, just recently, uh, earlier in the book, of course, showing them who Christ is and uh, why he's superior and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Uh, More recently, he has been setting before them these heroes of the Old Testament uh, who live by faith. Their lives were not perfect. They often had glaring flaws. But he wants to show them what it means to live by faith, or as he says in 11 verse 1, to carry out a life that reflects that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the certainty, the conviction, as the ESV has it, of things not seen. And he shows them these who live by faith. He goes on then, as we saw more recently, to show them uh, the example of Christ himself in the beginnings of uh, verse or chapter 12, uh, and encourages them with that in mind to look at the Christian life as a race. No one expects a race to be easy. You might expect the Christian life to be easy, but no one expects a race to be easy. And he says to them, well, the Christian life is like a race. And the same dynamics apply as apply in a race. And in our suffering and difficulty, he instructs them, and he instructs us to look at those trials as discipline, as the work Uh, motivated by love of our Heavenly Father to cultivate in us uh, peace, to cultivate in us holiness, righteousness, and all these things. 
Well, as we look at verse 12 and following, he, he returns in a, in a fairly subdued way, but he returns back to this, uh, the race imagery, uh, that athletic imagery with which he began the chapter. And in verses 12 and 13, he, he calls for a couple of things with that in mind, having talked about the life, Christian life as a race, about God's purpose and discipline. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. So he's calling for rehabilitation uh, from, from weakness, from past injury maybe. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Uh, really a, a quote from Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3. Uh, that was a, in, in its context, and Isaiah was assuring those who were afraid of God's deliverance. Uh, not not to just collapse in, in despair, uh, but to be assured of God's help. Well, it's a similar thing here. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Don't just collapse. Don't stop running. Don't falter because of fear, because of difficulties, because of affliction. Uh, they've, they've become weak. They've become discouraged, and they need healing, and they need strengthening. So he's calling for their rehabilitation. Time to perk up, time to keep going. But he also calls here for avoidance of future injury. Look at verse 13. Make straight paths for your feet so that what's lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And that's actually quoting from Proverbs uh, chapter 4, verses 26 through 27. Uh, So even in in his encouragement, he's actually quoting from the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures to him. Make straight paths or level paths for your feet, a straight line, so that what's lame, what's already been weakened, won't be further damaged, further injured. It's also possible to, uh, in some translate it, put out of joint as as turned from the way. Uh, but since he goes on to say, to contrast it with being healed, it seems that he's saying it's lame, it's weak. Uh, you want to you keep on the right path so that what has been weakened, instead of being broken or put out of joint damaged further, would be healed. And so that's the point that he's making in 12 and 13, calling for them with the idea of racing, for rehabilitation, and to avoid those things that are going to to hinder them, keep them from running well. Well, how do we do it? How do we get ourselves spiritually fit for that race that he calls us to run, that is the Christian life? Well, that's what he goes on to talk about in verses 14 through 17. Now, Anytime you enter into training, preparation for anything, particularly athletic event, there are certain things you want to follow, you want to do to make sure that you train on a schedule, to make sure you don't do too much too soon, but also to make sure you're not, that you're, you're doing too little and not making the progress that you want. Well, essentially, he gives us a training regimen here to prepare us to run the race well. So let's look at what that is. First, he says there are two qualities that we need to pursue. We need to go after, that we need to try to develop. In verse 14, notice what he says, strive for peace with everyone. The word strive is a very energetic verb. It doesn't mean just sort of sit around, wait, see if it happens. It means go after it. Do everything you can to make it happen. Scriptures here and in other places are quite plain that as believers, we are to be peacemakers. We are to do what we can to live at peace with 
one another. Think of a, a Psalm 34:14. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Quite possibly, verse he has in mind as he says this. Of course, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. And uh, Paul's admonition in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Is peace in your relationships with one another, with your husband, with your wife, children, fellow church members? Is that a priority? Notice that's, that's what he starts with here. Strive for peace with everyone. There are some Christians that just seem bent on contention, doing all they can to stir up strife, even with other believers. Um, Last week, I heard on the radio an interview with a firefighter here in the Atlanta area. He'd been on the job about a year and a half since he'd finished school, uh, been assigned to a fire station. He'd been there a year and a half, had yet to fight a fire. He'd gone, you know, where somebody smelled smoke and it was sort of a false alarm, something burning on the stove or the the proverbial cat in the tree, that kind of thing. But had yet to fight a fire. Reminds me of a story I heard uh, some years back, took place in Texas, of uh, some firefighters who were accused of uh, deliberately setting uh, more than 40 uh, destructive fires, firefighters. Set these fires, and when they were caught, they said, well, we had nothing to do. We just wanted to get the red lights flashing and the bells clanging. They just want to see something happen, get some excitement going. Well, of course, the irony is the job of firefighters is to put the fire out, not start them, and certainly not to start them to be able to put them out. Uh, well, the job of a Christian is to cultivate peace, not to try to stir up strife. It's to help resolve conflict, not to try to generate more of it. Uh, pursuing peace means a number of things. It means that we take a position where we refuse to retaliate. Paul is very clear in Romans 12 that we are not to return evil for evil, but good. Peter points out the example of Jesus in 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And, uh, and, and what it has to be one of the more challenging statements of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul is talking about lawsuits between believers, Paul says, why not rather be wronged? In other words, why not for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the witness of the church, for the sake of the gospel of the world, why not just absorb that wrong in yourself, giving it to Christ to allow him to sort out Justice. So as Christians, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of peace, for the sake of gospel, there may be times when we simply have to say, I'm just going to, to absorb that. And certainly not in a personal and vindictive way, retaliate. It means being able to forgive and willing to forgive those who have wronged you. It means humbling yourself if you need to, to go to somebody and say, look, what I said to you was wrong. What I did to you was wrong. I apologize. And will you please Forgive me. We have to humble ourselves to do that. It means that we do all we can to seek reconciliation with others and promote reconciliation among others. 
Now, you say, well, you know, I've tried to make peace. They just, they, they, they refuse to accept. They won't forgive me. They won't accept my apology. They won't even talk to me. Well, remember, Paul says, insofar as it depends on you, live at peace with all. Uh, if you've done all that you can to promote peace, then you've done all you can. And the Lord certainly knows that. So that's the first thing to pursue. The second thing he says that we're to pursue is holiness. Again, in verse 14. Strive for peace and, same verb applies, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And the, to see the Lord has the idea of salvation and to being there in the presence of God, to, uh, to gaze, as the psalmist says, on the beauty of the Lord. Uh, and again, I think uh, the writer of the Hebrews has the Beatitudes in mind here. Blessed uh, are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Very similar to what he says here. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are holy in heart, for they shall see God. Now, obviously, this is assuming justification. It is assuming that God-given holiness, that righteousness that we have before God that has been accomplished for us by Christ. But it goes beyond that. I think what he's talking about, I think it assumes justification, which is essential if we're Christians. By definition, as a Christian, we have been justified. We're right with God in Christ. But what he's talking about is sanctification. In fact, uh, the New American Standard, I believe, translates the word there, not holiness, but the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Either way you take it, the meaning really is the same. The way we live, how we behave, what we do, what we don't do, the way we think, the way we speak, uh, being Christ-like, being increasingly in conformity with God's Word. Certainly outwardly. But you know, the, the real atmosphere of maturity in Christ is that increasingly that is not dealing with outward behavior, but dealing with the heart, dealing with ourselves inwardly. Um, somebody becomes a Christian out of a very, uh, a very pagan, profane lifestyle. There are a lot of pretty simple, basic things that would need to change in their lives, things that are easily identifiable. And in a certain degree, uh, easy to, to address and deal with. But as we grow, we, we increasingly find sanctification being a matter of dealing with our own hearts. And that can be subtle. That can be hard. It can be difficult. But it's all part of it. Because the Lord certainly sees our outward behavior, but he also sees the heart. And so this pertains to both, outward and inward. That holiness, that sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, it's not, of course, that the holiness earns it. But it is the fruit of genuine justification, a new heart, the fruit of our being born again in Christ. We need to recognize, though, the seriousness of what he's saying. Because there is a certain way of, of thinking, a certain strain of teaching in the church that seems to discount holiness. Uh, that almost writes holiness off as legalism. You know, that, that you simply believe and you're saved. And praise God, that's true. But the question is, have you genuinely believed? If you have, 
there will be changes in your life. Uh, This idea that someone can profess to be a Christian and yet their, their life is no different from the world is a complete mistake. We are saved by grace alone. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. True. But that inevitably will result in change. How can we who died to sin, Paul says, still live in it? We're not saved by the holiness, but the holiness is, is an indication that we are saved. And if that's not there, and if there's no regard for that, then there's every reason to doubt that you would see the Lord in terms of being with him, in terms of seeing him in, in heaven as your heavenly father. So are we serious about cultivating holiness, about cultivating Christ-likeness in our lives? God is in earnest about it. In the Old Testament, he says to his people, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter repeats that, First Peter chapter 1, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holy. God is absolutely in earnest that his people who belong to him will reflect his holiness in our behavior in a way that distinguishes us from the world. Now, we need to recognize, of course, the grace of God. You know, Paul says, after listing all kinds of sins, this is what many of you were. But you were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified. Don't think, well, I've got these sins in my past. I've blown it. No, we're a new creation in Christ, and God's grace is greater than our sin, no matter how numerous, no matter how vile. But in Christ, we hate our sin, and we want to be holy like our Savior, our King, is holy. So two things to pursue, peace and holiness. But now he goes on to list some pitfalls to avoid If we're training for the Christian race, we want to be peacemakers, we want to be holy like Jesus. But there's also some things we want to avoid, things we we don't want to fall into that could could, uh, trip us up. Number one, he mentions falling short of the grace of God. Look at verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now, this has been a theme in Hebrews that we've seen before. You go back to... um, Go back to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. You know, he goes on to warn about those in the wilderness, you know, who had seen the Exodus, experienced all of that, and yet in their unbelief died in the wilderness. They didn't enter God's rest. I think he's getting back to that same theme, that same warning. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What a tragedy to be in the church, to hear the word of God, to hear the gospel, to be surrounded by believers and end up in hell. Fail to obtain the grace of God. Uh, Be diligent to examine your heart, to guard your heart, to always be looking for and trying to cultivate uh, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit in your heart. Falling short of the grace of God, one pitfall, is that we just don't make it. You just don't, don't even, even get there. Uh, number two, another pitfall is allow, is, 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 a pitfall is allowing, uh, as he describes it here, uh, in verse 15, roots of bitterness. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. 
Now, the reference is back to Deuteronomy 29.18. Again, he is, uh, as he is, is prone to do, uh, whether uh, explicitly or indirectly, referring back to the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 29.18, uh, Moses says, Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. So you hear echoed in Hebrews that warning against missing the grace of God, a warning against this root of bitterness that springs up here, uh, turning away from the Lord to idolatry. And the same thing, the same idea is here. It's uh, sin, rebellious heart, Attitude that if unchecked can spread, can affect and infect others and therefore defile many. He's already warned about this in Hebrews chapter 3 earlier. In verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And so we need to be careful. We need to watch our hearts. One, that we don't miss the grace of God. Uh, And two... Uh, that we don't become embittered, that we don't become angry at God with difficulties in our lives, or that we don't, uh, refusing to forgive another believer, become bitter towards someone else in our heart. Uh, we need to be sure that, uh, to go back to what he said, that we are pursuing peace and not allowing bitterness to take root, uh, to make to harden our own hearts and, and affect those around us. And, and tragically, we, uh, this, this takes place in churches, where churches become divided, Almost seem to just hate each other. What's with that? Well, we need to guard our hearts. Beware the pitfall of missing the grace of God. And along with that, uh, beware that there's not bitterness, that there's not this uh, this evil root that grows and, and defiles many. Uh, another one, a big one, is is uh, the pitfall of sexual sin, sexual immorality. Verse sixteen: that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, like Esau. How would you how would you like to be the poster child for sexually immoral or unholy? Like Esau. Ooh, ouch. Uh, the word unholy there could also be rendered profane or worldly, something like that. Um, so no one is sexually immoral. Uh, obviously, uh, such temptations are around us. They always have been. Uh, throughout history, you can go back, you know, think about Lot living at Sodom and Gomorrah uh, way back. Uh, and it's certainly uh, present today uh, and perhaps amplified through the Internet and other avenues of communication uh, and connection that we have uh, today. And I heard again just recently of uh, a marriage uh, that was broken up, adultery taking place when someone met up with someone else on Facebook. Is Facebook evil? No. But it can be a pitfall. It can be uh, one door of opportunity to sin or temptation that didn't exist uh, even 10 years ago. Certainly not a thousand years ago. Uh, So this has always been the case, but we just need to be on guard in our own day because of the avenues for temptation that are there. Um, As Christians, we need to be committed to God's standards uh, for the 
for the indulgence or practice or enjoyment, however you want to put it, of our sexuality. God made us the way that we are. Uh, and so we want to honor him in our sexuality, that we not become sexually immoral. You know, Paul says every other sin uh, that someone commits is, is outside his body, but sexual sin is against our own bodies. It's, 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 a, it's personal in a way that other sin is not. It affects us in a way that other sin does not. And perhaps that's why he singles it out here and other places in the Bible do as well. Remember what Paul said. You are not your own. Your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. Nothing less than the blood of Jesus. Therefore, honor God with your body. Remember, Jesus died to redeem your body, not just your soul. Soul too, but he also died to redeem your body. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God, honor God with your body. And so we need to remember God's grace to make us pure in this area and to help keep us pure in this area. And then finally, worldliness. Getting back to Esau. It's no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Uh, profane, godless, worldly, uh, secular in a, in a bad sense. Why, why is, is, is Esau described as that way? Well, because he acted in a profane way. He was willing to trade his spiritual heritage, his birthright, for a single meal. Just a very pragmatic, short-sighted, Act of selfishness to trade his birthright for a meal. There are a lot of people who do that today. A lot of professing Christians who do that today. And afterward, when he wanted to get it back, he couldn't get the blessing back. When he wanted to inherit, he was rejected. Remember, Isaac said, no, I've given my blessing. And even though Jacob got it, Jacob got it by deceit, it was Jacob's. And that's why he says he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He couldn't change the outcome. What he had done uh, could not be undone. God is not mocked. Man reaps what he sows. It is interesting, it's Esau, because Jacob was just as much a rascal as Esau was. Jacob was the recipient of God's inscrutable, sovereign grace in a way that Esau was not. Jacob wasn't born with a halo or anything either. But he does point to Esau as this, this, this example of just this crass, short-sighted, live-for-the-moment behavior where he sells his birthright for a meal. Once he's done it, he can't undo it. It's too late. And so the warning to the Hebrews, the warning to us is, do not trade your spiritual inheritance for momentary pleasure, momentary comfort, fleeting pleasures of sin. So this is how we train. This is the regimen that prepares us for the race of the Christian life. To avoid these pitfalls that are going to put our legs out of joint, such things as falling short of God's grace, allowing roots of bitterness to spring up, sexual sin in our lives, a worldly, secular, profane, practical atheism kind of spirit. But instead, pursuing peace, Pursuing holiness, Christ-likeness, and all that you are, and all that you do. Is that a conscious part of how you live tomorrow? I hope it will be. I hope you will remember this tomorrow and think, I'm going to pursue peace. 
I'm going to pursue Christ-like holiness in my life. Holiness isn't something weird or ethereal. It can be very practical, very down-to-earth. It just means living according to God's Word, living according to the likeness of Christ. You see, much misery in life and in the Christian life can be traced back to a failure to pursue those things and a failure to avoid these pitfalls that he describes. And how beautiful and how graceful and how inspiring the lies, how strong are those testimonies, how triumphant finishes the finish line of those who by the grace of God have followed this regiment. Let's pray. Father, may it be of true of us. Lord, we pray by your grace you would guard us, keep us from these things that would trip us up, things that would bring us down. But Lord, that our lives would be characterized by commitment to peace and pursuit of holiness. Father, we thank you that it is your work. We recognize, Lord, that we cannot do this on our own and we don't have to. But you've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us one another in the church to help us keep at it, to keep training and running the Christian life for your glory and for our joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.